You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Sometimes there was a warning of a call, thunder in the distance on a clear day, a black cloud hanging over the city. Usually we were not so fortunate. Monotony, a string of tasks, the long wait, and then, piercing the quiet, a ring. The ring. Time to go on a call. If I close my eyes now and let my mind drift, I can see every ritualized movement, every inch of concrete crossed, every step between my desk and the waiting armored truck. The papers thumbtacked to the plywood wall next to the phone. The computer that printed maps of the location of each call. The dust on the gray floor. The placement of my pistol in the gun rack. The metal peg on the has blast doors where my body armor hung. The contents of every pocket. My brain has been torn and ripped by explosions. Memories of my children stolen or faded, blown apart in each blast. So how do I remember every inch, every second of the move to a call? I am surrounded by reminders. They come unbidden, springing to mind. Every pair of boots I own are sandy. My rifle is always waiting for me. My children's first steps are my walk to the truck. Brian Kastner is a graduate of Marquette University with an electrical engineering degree. He served three terms in the Middle East as an officer of the U.S. Air Force, two of them leading an EOD unit in Iraq, receiving a Bronze Star for his service. He's consulted as a civilian contractor, training EOD units in tactical bomb disposal procedures. His new book is The Long Walk, A Story of War and the Life That Follows. Thank you for joining me, Brian. Thank you for having me. Brian, this is a very interesting book. And what I really love about this book, what really struck me, is your sense of story. The way this tells a story, uh, the way the story unfolds, it reinforces its uh, integral part of what happened to you, and it's a reflection of what happened to you. Well, I appreciate you saying so because that was my goal. Um, th- I think the form is very important to it. I-, I couldn't just write a three-act play where the first section is, hey, I went to war and this is the stuff I did, and then the second second section was, and then here's how I felt about it and here's how my life fell apart a little bit afterwards, and then a third section of, oh, okay, I'm all better now. That just that just didn't make any sense because my goal in writing the book was to write it as it felt. And so we took a, a lot of care in in what sections came in what order. It's certainly not a traditional narrative. It, it starts in the middle and then it interweaves and goes back and forth from there. But every step of it, every every section from the past to the present, and and why I chose to go where I did, that that certainly was all very deliberate. It wasn't just uh, playing cards thrown on the floor and then we picked them up in some random order. No, it seems uh, ex- an extremely fine architecture. I'd like you to talk just a little bit about uh, crafting this as a as a work of of memoir. Did you at first write out things in chronological order, set out notes, or did you just start? set pen to page on page one and go through to page 220. Oh, no, ex- exactly the opposite. I I started uh, in the middle with uh, the chapter on Kermit was the section I wrote first. And then I kind of wrote whatever felt right at the time. I would go for a run and and whatever I was thinking about on the run that was just constantly going through my mind, I would get back and I would furiously write 500 or 1,000 words and I might finish a vignette or I might write half of it and give myself a plan of what to do the next time. And then I put this giant sheet of butcher paper on the wall and I color-coded it with um, brown markers were for the past and blue markers for the present. And then I had some green markers, which which I labeled for some of the recovery sort of thing. Some of the yoga was in green and some of the scenes with uh, my psychologist were in green. And then I would write out on the butcher paper, like kind of a title of each vignette. And then I could see how the colors changed. I used some symbols to keep track of 
where I mentioned Ricky, for instance, um, where I mentioned the foot in the box, for instance, these are like reoccurring themes that I wanted to make sure were consistent through the book and used in the right place and not all grouped together. I wanted that to make sense. And then I would do all this planning on the butcher paper, and then I ended up crossing stuff out and moving it, and I would write something in chapter three, and then it would get kicked to four and five and six, and you know, it ended up in chapter eight. And, and I, I really want to make sure I had the right transition. There's some, even if it's subconscious for the reader, to feel like one section followed another, a theme of a smell, a theme of a place, uh, a theme of being in bed, a th- whatever the case may be, whatever the linkage was, there was, there was that little clasp between different train cars. So when it finally went in order... Maybe there's an oil car followed by the box car or whatever else, but there's a reason we got from from one to the next. And finally, when I ran out of space crossing things out on the butcher paper, I ended up putting sticky notes on top of it in the final bit to as I finally moved things around and got it exactly like I wanted. And then when we edited it, uh, the very first thing that my um, my editor, Jerry Howard, absolutely incredible editor, um, and really supportive of how the book was when I showed him it and I showed him the butcher paper at home and he said, OK, so the first thing we need to do is not move anything. So just make sure that as we as we make little tweaks here and there, you know, do not move a bit of it. That was that was one of the first things. It's such a, a powerful narrative of of modern war. And one of the things that I found really interesting was that how complicated Everything you had to do over there was. I mean, you cannot blink without filling out forms, making sure you're not going to get shot, telling everybody else, uh, putting on the protective gear, making sure that protective gear can come off right. It's amazing how complicated things are over there. Right. And it's not even like when you get the call for an IED that you can't just drive out there yourself either. Your security has to come. You have to form up in your convoy. You have to make a plan. Some guys carried around books and books of checklists um, so they could keep track of what of everything that needed to be done. Fighting a war is complicated. F- um, you know, fighting a war as an Air Force guy working for the Army is another level of complication because you use different words for the same things or you have different changes of command or whatever else. And then war is just chaos anyway. And so you're just, you know, doing the best you can from kind of minute to minute. And you you are bound to lose things. But the I guess that attention to detail that you develop, that was one of those things that I kept after my time in Iraq and maybe wasn't quite as useful in civilian life when you're you know, keeping track of every little thing in your house and and dishes and getting your kids to soccer and all these other kinds of things. I guess I have a color-coded calendar to get my kids around, you know, to all their various activities. So maybe a lot of this organization, you know, it's it's just kind of bleeded into my life. And um, it, as I think about it now, a lot of writers, they talk about how they don't have they don't feel like they have the discipline or the organization or they lose their notes or whatever else of, of all the struggles i had writing none of those things really make sense to me now you were not expecting to be thrust into this kind of situation when you uh, signed up for service you were you thought you were going to have it pretty easy hanging out in saudi saudi arabia that's right and you know, 1999, when I got commissioned in the Air Force, is starting to feel like a long time ago. I mean, mm-hmm. you think about how much has happened in the country and stuff. It, it's an eye blink to me. But just it, w- it was a different military that I was a, that I was joining. And then when I went to Saudi Arabia in 2001 in August, uh, it was it was to do Operation Southern Watch, which if folks remember was the no-fly zones over southern Iraq watching uh, Saddam Hussein. I thought we were going for a 90-day va- vacation, essentially. And it's what a lot of guys did for years. You you would go. It was time away from the family. That part wasn't so good, but you spent a lot of time in the gym and you worked out and, you know, it was club med, you know, a, a little bit as far as it was a weight loss program for some folks. And instead, obviously, 9-11 happened and everything just, um, you know, went on a different track there. Uh, and even when I went to EOD school in 2003, IEDs, improvised explosive devices, were not really 
a thing in the public consciousness yet. We knew about them in the military. People have been building pipe bombs for a long time and the Unabomber and all these kind of things. But they weren't the primary weapon of an insurgent campaign until, well, until really Iraq. And then, it, you know, it, it's grown in Afghanistan, too, since. Well, one of the things that's interesting is that in your time in, in the EOD, that technology on both sides of the equation underwent a lot of change and a lot of upgrades. So talk a little bit about, on one hand, having to learn what the technology you're getting in, on one hand, having to deal with the way that the enemy was able to use our cast off and, re- and reassemble it into these kind of Frankenstein type things that we'd never seen before. That, that's a good way of putting it. So a lot of our tactics and equipment and robots and everything else was really borrowed from the British and their, uh, their experience in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. And obviously there were a lot of car bombs there uh, and there were a lot of other types of devices of IEDs. And the technology change, what took 20 years of upgrades or cat and mouse game in Northern Ireland took only two or three years in Iraq. And so the devices got very sophisticated very quickly. And then to match that, our technology would change so fast that when I went, the robots that I had in Balad in central Iraq in 2005 did not even match at all the robots that I had in 2006 in Kirkuk, essentially a year and a half later. When, if, if you took the times when I arrived, they got, they got smaller, they got lighter, they got stronger, they had longer distances. Our jamming equipment was just upgraded nearly monthly. Um, it, it was just amazing. The necessity is not the mother of invention. War is the mother of invention. And the, what the U.S. Um, contracting complex was able to produce was extremely fast. But then Every bit of basic consumer electronics or uh, just think of the average technology that you use, your cell phone and the, the phone in your house and all of the various wireless devices that you use in your normal civilian life. As fast as there are upgrades in that technology, that's how fast an insurgent in Iraq could use it to build a new kind of bomb. Talk about making the decision to to go into EOD. That's not can't have been an easy decision, or was it? Oh, it was, it was extremely easy because because I wasn't thinking about uh, danger, and I wasn't thinking about uh, ten years of war in Iraq or Afghanistan. I wasn't thinking about any of that. I was thinking about how cool it was, and how hard it looked. And I just, I relished the challenge. I knew that EOD school is one of the highest washout rate schools in the military because not only is there tremendous book learning that needs to take place in the classroom, but then you have to physically take all of those things that you just learned and physically put them in practice. And if you know how to take apart the rocket, but then you can't physically do it, well, then you're, you're not going to make a good tech. And if you work well with your hands, but you just can't get through the physics and the math and everything else, then you're also not going to be good. So it was that it was that blending. I think the analogy I use in the book is that it's like being a surgeon, except you if you screw up, you die and not the patient. And my my class was 30 of us started and three of us finished together. And and I knew that if I graduated EOD school, that I had done something I could brag about for the rest of my life. It was harder than college. It was harder than my master's degree, for sure. It was the most intense educational, you know, crucible that I've ever done. One of the things I think you do very well in this book is to give us the exact right level of details. And this is all the way through the narrative. This is a remarkably quick read. It's just over 200 pages. And I love your sense of the details of just how explosives work and the history of explosions and and the British genius who who came up with the, the water the water bomb diffusing mechanism. So talk a little bit about learning that yourself and then coming back and reconstructing the memories into prose when you have some issues with your own memories and your own experiences. 
Right. And so the I guess the the really frustrating thing personally was that my memories when it comes to uh, explosives and the, the various IED calls we went on and all those wartime tasks and events is is fairly clear. And it was a lot of my civilian experiences, uh, my kids being born and birthday parties and all these other kind of things. That's what seemed to fade. And so, you know, why would I remember one thing and not another? I think that there's a certain amount of um, there's a certain amount of just self-preservation that's in, involved there where your your brain spends its time on the things that are required to keep it alive. And so my brain spent all of its time on rifles and explosives and robots and the next IED. And you're in you're way low on the Maslow hierarchy of needs, right? You are at the very bottom. I just need to live through today. What do I need to do to live through today? Every book I read was a history of war or um, you know, Black Hawk Down or something like that. It, I was just solely focused on that. And so when it came to reconstructing this the stuff in the book, I, I mean, I, I teach about explosives now. I, I teach how to use uh, some of these various tools. Um, and I did spend a lot of time trying to get the level of detail right where the reader would feel like they they did learn something, but I'm not going to go into so much detail that well, certainly that you can do it yourself, but I also don't want to bog down the narrative in lots and lots of details. There needs to be some Goldilocks state there where it's just right, and and that's what we were going for. Now, you go back and forth in this narrative between the your times in the school, but also immediately plunge us right back into your life immediately after returning home, and you say you were crazy. Right, because I didn't have another word for it, I guess, really. And I didn't I – didn't, uh, a couple things about that, I guess. One is that that word has a lot of connotations and it has a lot of bad press perhaps. You know, my, my psychologist says at one point, well, we don't use that word here. Well, you know, veterans use that word between each other as in or or active duty military do is that, you know, you don't nobody wants to be crazy. Nobody wants to become the stereotype or the parody of the crazy vet who's always jumping at car doors and thinks that the, you know, that the enemy is coming through their backyard or something like that. Like you, you don't want to be that. The, the other side is if if I had felt stress, I would have called it stress. And if I had felt worry or um, uh, concern, or nausea, or pain, or something. If I had, if I had another word that I knew, I would have used it, but I didn't. I had a feeling that had no name, and and for me, I I had a need to explain it. It takes me an entire book, I think, to try to communicate to the reader what this feeling felt like. Crazy is is a is shorthand, but really, I, I you know, it, it took me a bunch of, of various descriptions or not just descriptions of how it felt, but then also uh, here's what it did to me. Here are the actions I took because of it, you know, I think to try to get the reader a sense of, of what it really felt like. What's really interesting is that as uh, as a prose writer, you're really good at that, and it's it's really uh, the prose is really powerful and it's very immersive, and you. But you give us uh, just enough distance so that we can see it and we can see that you see it from the other side. And this must have been very tricky to write and I think a little bit scary. You know, the I don't know about scary um, because I was feeling it. I was feeling it whether I wrote about it or not. And some of the events in the book didn't even happen until I was three-quarters of the way through the manuscript. So I was – it's not like I experienced all these things and then afterwards I said, oh, OK, well, now I'll write about it. Well, what, for example, did you experience while you were writing the book? For example, the scene of um, – uh, there's a scene of a school reunion where I go and I, I talk with some, some buddies and they're – you know, we've got an accountant and a dentist and whatever else. And they ask me about what I do and I tell them. Uh, and then everything starts to get quiet, and you know, I one of those things I didn't, I don't have anymore is is a filter, or it's taken me a long time to relearn a filter. 
So you start to tell very inappropriate jokes about dead children and what it smells like when a body's been cooking on the pavement. And, you know, is, isn't this hilarious and funny? And I would, um, you, you know, you really get into that gallows humor, which is not appropriate for polite society. We don't, we don't talk about these things. And so that was one example that happened is just how uncomfortable it gets to try to reintegrate. Another good example, and this was the book was nearly done when this happened, is the scene uh, in the hockey locker room um, where I'm dressing out my son for the championship hockey game and I'm helping put on his uh, his goalie outfit and all the pads and the helmet and everything else. And I realize that it, you know, I start crying in the middle of that once again in 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 normal conversation in society, just parents don't randomly start crying in the middle of you know, locker rooms, a sporting event. But I realized it, it felt to me like I was, you know, putting my son in the bomb suit. Then mm. it's the same actions in almost the same order. And so there's there's an example of how uh, the war never really feels like it never really leaves. It feels like you always have these reminders. And so that's why, again, I wrote this narrative that intertwines the two because one thing was happening on top of the other. It's it's so interesting. There's there's one part where you describe your skull exploding and and turning into a spider. You know, it's there's actually a scene in John Carpenter's The Thing where that literally happens, where somebody's head drips down the floor, sprouts spider legs, and runs away. And I was thinking that this is it's so interesting the way that you are able to summon up imagery to describe your own state of mind. You know, I haven't seen that. I, I think and, and because I haven't seen it, I do think I get overly influenced by particular images or, or lines from movies or particular books or whatever else. Um, I, I read through this and I, I pick I can when I read through it now, I can pick out a line and I say, oh, I know exactly where <laughs> where that one came from. So I tried to not – when I was writing this, I was really careful about what I read because I didn't mm-hmm. want the wrong things to percolate through. And I also avoided other war memoirs or war books or whatever else because I didn't want to rewrite somebody else's book. I only wanted to write my book. So it, so it occurs to me then that if I wasn't channeling that specifically, if there's just something about particular imagery or feelings that is some human response that this is this is how we choose to describe it. I can tell you that I was laying in bed and I I have heard people say that I feel like like the ceiling is pushing down on me. Like I had heard that as kind of a cliche. I like literally felt like there was a concrete block on my chest. And as I had trouble breathing, I, I don't know, I felt like something detached from the back of my head and like, you know, that it's the it's what it felt like. Once again, I tried to write the book how it felt. So I want—I don't know why that imagery, except it wasn't exactly metaphor. It's what it felt like. Now, you uh, went through e- EOD school. You made it over there, but you didn't last very long. And I think this comes up – you came up quickly up against what I kind of called you know, the bureaucracy of safety. There's so much bureaucracy to make sure that everybody's safe that it makes it hard to do the job. So I'd like you to talk about your uh, – well, were you actually court-martialed? No, I was was charged with disobeying the direct order of a general during wartime, which is a very specific charge and sounds pretty pretty bad. And that's – that can get you in jail and I think it used to get you shot, you know, 100 or 200 years ago. a long time ago now, certainly. So, no, I, w- I wasn't court-martialed, but I think bureaucracy of safety is a good way of putting it in that um, a lot of commanders, and I, I did this myself with the 30-something guys who are working for me, your goal is everybody comes home safe. 30 guys go, 30 guys come back vertical. So if how, how are we going to do that? Well, some some commanders want to exert more control than others to kind of I don't want to say micromanage, but they want to know exactly what's going on. And so in my case, and my first tour in Balad in 2005, I had to call the general 
who was the top Air Force officer on the base, who was the commander of the wing of the several thousand Air Force uh, personnel. I had to call him every time we went off base. I had to request um, when we went on a convoy to get robots fixed, when we did any little thing, two, two in the morning and guys are getting shot at and we need to get out there to clear something so they can leave, we still called and got permission. And so in this particular case, uh, I knew that that's what we had to do. We had a bunch of broken robots. The only place to get them fixed was Baghdad. That was an hour and a half drive south. And I, I fill out the paperwork. I asked. I never heard back. I didn't hear yes or no. The day of the convoy came, and I, I thought I knew better. I, I didn't wait to hear what the answer was going to be. We need robots fixed. Send them off. And the guys had already left by the time that I found out that our request got denied. So... Well, I told my boss, well, they already left, and I was out of a job and charged, you know, within within an hour, I guess. And really, at the end result of that was I got a very minor paperwork punishment. Um, my paperwork got shredded eventually by a new boss that I got afterwards. Uh, really, the punishment was the guys that I had trained with to go over with, and I felt incredible loyalty to um, – you know, I didn't get to finish my tour as their commander. I went to the rear with the gear, and they stayed in combat. And to this day, I feel like I let them down. Could you talk about that sense of family that develops? Because it's, I think, in many ways, the way you describe it, the the bonds are in many ways almost stronger than family. Right. It's a it's a family that you choose, I guess, and and I call it brotherhood. Um, and and that's that's just one term for it. And again, I think kind of like like crazy. I I spend a lot of the book trying to trying to get you to understand what it feels like, trying to communicate and explain that to the reader, um, because it is there's something there's another level of bond when your life depends on this other person that you're working with. And you both are getting shot at together. And you are with each other in some of the most extreme, terrifying, and intimate, I guess, moments of your life. There is, you never feel more alive than when you're being shot at. And you're doing that with these other guys. And you all have the same mission. And there's just incredible sense of purpose and loyalty to the point where it's, it's not a particular person. Your loyalty is to the brotherhood in general. So I did a reading in Buffalo. It's not a lot of EOD guys in Buffalo. There's only, you know, there's me and <laughs> not, not really others. There's no base nearby. There's, um, but, but I did a reading at a local bookstore there, and um, a guy from Buffalo who was on leave, who was stationed at another Air Force base, saw it in the paper, came to the reading um, just because he knew that I was EOD as well. And he came up to me afterwards, and I had never met him before. But, you know, we were old friends who had known each other for 20 years. You know, there's just this – It's you, you, don't, you don't need to – it's not the person. It's the, it's the group that you have the loyalty to. You described some really interesting situations over there. I, I'd like you to, to talk about um, – the time, uh, the day of six V-beds. Right, uh, which is what we called it later. Uh, a V-bed, of course, is a vehicle-borne IED, uh, which is a car bomb. And we had six of them that um, the attack was coordinated. So uh, six of them attacked within 15 minutes. Five of them went off and one did not. Well, tell us. <laughs> so what? That's a that's a lot of work, right? It is well, and we had two teams, um, and so there's this sense that you know the military is a is a is a big animal, and there's a lot of people doing it, and yet when you get down to the actual thing that needs to be done in combat, there's never enough. So Kirkuk is a city of a million people, packed into a very small area. There's not really suburbs like we would think of them. And for that area, I had two teams of six people total. So, you know, your local county bomb squad, you know, has has more than that, probably. 
and they're they're not running four and five and ten incidents a day. So when those six car bombs attacked, there were really only two teams that could work, and we leapfrogged from one to the next. Uh, and one at the very end, we managed to um, to disassemble. And you mentioned that explosives and water mix earlier. Uh, you know, we we use a tool called the boot banger. Uh, which it's a British tool, and of course the boot is the trunk of a car, and so it's made to go at the underneath the back end of the car, and it makes everything that that's in the car, you know, come out uh, without actually detonating it. So we were actually able to use one and and safe that car bomb. One of the most disheartening parts of of what we did, or our our tour when we were there in 2006, which was before the surge and before we really started to make headway was we were taking apart very few IEDs proportionately. I mean, a couple a day. But compared to the the total percentage of, uh, or compared to the overall percentage of how many were actually out there, we were just not taking apart enough. So we did uh, 50, 60 car bombs uh, total on that tour, and there was only one of them that we disassembled before it went off. Every other one went off and hit its target and, you know, killed who knows how many number of people. Could you talk about the different kinds of IEDs? There, you, you described some of the varieties. I, it's interesting, the, the permutations. Sure. So there's really the only thing that limits an IED is the imagination of the bomber. So there's a couple basic ways to make them go off. You can have the victim do something step in a certain spot or pick something up, uh, and that can make it go off. Or you can set up a time device, a time bomb, um, which which they use some of, and that's if you don't really care who's around when it goes off. And then there are some very specific control devices that use any type of radio-controlled or command wires or a lot of other kind of things to make them go off. And then so you have you can organize them based upon the trigger type, which I just said, or you can organize them based upon the target or the size. Some IEDs are hitting on the side of the road to hit convoys. Some are car bombs that are meant to hit a marketplace or a group of people or a government building or something. They would make improvised rockets that they would shoot at the base, um, that they would they'd put those on timers. Really, there's just so many different ways to do it. And the, and the bomber, we were talking a little bit about this before, that the, the bomber got better and better and better uh, as the years went on. Now, if you're not disarming these devices before they explode, you're, you might be sitting on top of them practically or next to them when they explode. And this must have happened often to you, I'm guessing. It did. Well, we call those um, secondary devices. So sometimes there would be a primary device, which is what you got called for, and it either went off or it didn't. And if it if it did go off already, you're doing forensics work. You're trying to collect all the evidence and get um, samples of biometrics and little pieces of wire and trying to figure out what it was. You're building you're you're building a body of evidence like you would if you were a policeman, a detective at a crime scene, except you have five or ten minutes to collect the evidence and you're being shot at while you're doing it. So you have very limited window. So there's that primary initial device, and then there could be uh, secondaries or tertiaries or additional devices that are there to hit um, hit you as the as the EOD technician, uh, the bomb tech who who's you know who's responding. It could be there to hit the uh, uh, the other responders. Say the first one went off and there's casualties. Well, maybe the second one there is there to to help that or to hit the helpers, I should say, you know, it's hitting, it's there to target the helicopter that's coming in for a medevac or whatever else. So a lot of the work that we do or a lot of our tactics or procedures are based on keeping yourself safe while taking apart this primary one. And in fact, the primary one is usually the least threat to you because you know where it is and you know basically how big it is. And so you can stay far enough away from that one. It's how close are you to the others that you don't see. Um, and the, the EOD technicians who have died, and we've, we've lost too many, um, it's about 115 is the number that we're at uh, since 9-11. You know, a, a lot of those guys have died because they, 
they stepped on something or a secondary hit them that they simply didn't see. It's very rare that it, it's a primary IED that gets you. It's something that you just never saw. Now, interspersed in the narrative, your narrative about this war, which is complicated and scary and gripping, we have your complicated and scary and gripping life back home. And when you first arrived home, you you didn't really think that much was wrong with you, but you were running to to run off what you called uh, even early on the crazy. Right. I had I had stayed in shape um, when I got back, and I just worked out as kind of a matter of habit, I guess. Um, but I wasn't running like I was later, and this and this may seem odd, but when the crazy really hit me all at once. It was three years after I had gotten out of the Air Force, and I didn't know that the war was the problem, quote unquote, so to speak. Um, it it was not. There was no specific trigger as to why I went crazy when I did, which is how it felt, um, and nothing made that feeling go away. Some things made it worse, um, but I I couldn't find a specific reason why it was happening then. The running helped and the running, I, I just ran more and more and more. So if I would normally run two or three miles, I started running six or eight miles. And if I would normally run once or twice a week, I started running five days a week. I ran until I nearly tore my IT band and had a bunch of knee damage and all of these other things just because running exhausted me so much. It was the only thing that made that crazy feeling that I had no other name for. It's the only thing that made it go away, but it only made it go away because the running hurt worse. You describe uh, this uh, at one point as being like waiting for summer vacation in school. And I thought that was an interesting analogy. You know, I always used to be done with my test first. I, I was a good student. And it never took me long. I was used to being the first one to hand in my test all the time. And so when I wasn't, that feeling of, I don't know, I, I grew up in, in Buffalo, New York, where we had definite, you know, there, there, was, there was definitely the school year and then there was summer. And summer was three months of fun that you just couldn't wait to get to. And those final exams right before summer vacation, and not just not only do you have to take this terrible exam, which is the last thing you want to do when you can smell cut grass wafting in the window and your, you know, your friends are outside already playing soccer and everything else. Not only do you want to, do you want to get through that exam so you, you can get to summer, but now you're the last one in the room. Everybody else is leaving. And that whatever that combination of feelings is, that's what the crazy felt like in some way, except when you're done with your test, summer comes. And when you're done with your test with the crazy, I still felt crazy. Like it ne- nothing ever, nothing ever made it go away. And that's what just made it so intolerable. You thought you were having a heart attack. I thought I was having a couple. I, and my, my wife, um, who was an emergency room nurse at the time, pulled out her stethoscope and could hear my heart flooding around and missing beats and everything else. And she said, you know, you need to get in. And they hooked me up to all the monitors, and I started to look pretty healthy. You know, I was, I guess, th- you know, 32 when, when a lot of this stuff was happening, and 31, 33, whatever. And I, I looked pretty healthy compared to the other people in the emergency room. And, well, you know, there's nothing, nothing really wrong with you. Why don't you go home and just, you know— de-stress and hang out like, you know, I could just, oh, I'll just watch some TV. And why didn't I think of that before? That'll just make it all go away. And, and of course, it didn't. And I made them do all the stress tests and everything else. And once we crossed out every physical symptom off the list, I still had the same feeling, you know, and that's another reason I said, well, okay, so it's all in my head. I guess I'm crazy. Now, you also um, talk about uh what you call a TBI, so 
this gets to actually there, there, there was something that physically happened to you. And this is what I think is, is so interesting. This is cutting-edge science that we're just discovering right now. Th- that's right. Um, so TBI is traumatic brain injury. And a, a lot of the science is so new. It really started uh, – Dr. Cernak was a researcher in Bosnia uh, during the um, – in Sarajevo and in those surrounding areas – uh, during the Bosnia War in the mid-90s. And s- veterans of that conflict started to show up in hospitals with new sets of symptoms that, you know, that we had never seen before. Because that was really the first time that modern war met modern medicine and people were starting to survive blasts that they never would have otherwise. Things that would have killed in Vietnam or World War II, people were now surviving. And that just that magnified, um, multiplied many times over in Iraq and Afghanistan, where because of the amount of armor that we have that we wear and then that is also on the vehicles, you know, you can you can sit on top of several artillery rounds. I don't recommend it, but some of our vehicles can survive this blast of just a lot of explosives. And it's not going to take off your leg and you're not going to bleed out. And it's going to seem like you're fine and you're going to make it through. But that the blast waves do something to your brain. Um, and the prolonged exposure to that over and over and over again, the more things that blow up around you, the more damage that you do. And so there's a, a lot of this research, you know, we're only figuring out now. And I, I, I talked to a couple of researchers in the course of writing the book to really get, you know, the very um, the very latest. But the basic idea is that a blast wave is like a sound wave. It's a compression wave. So it speeds up or slows down depending on how dense the medium is that it's traveling through. So it goes pretty slowly through the air, and then it speeds up through this desk or the wall or your head or your helmet or your gut or whatever the case may be. And then it speeds up or slows down every time it hits that density junction. So, of course, your brain is full of synapses and bumps and twists and turns and nerve endings. So each of those start moving at a different speed and in another different direction, and they rip internally. And what rips is is a little bit random, and the damage that you have after it, you can, you can lose on an occupational level when it happens over and over and over again. You can lose some memories. You can lose um, guys have a lot of sleep troubles. Um, either they can't sleep at all or they have sleep disorders while they are asleep. You can have trouble making decisions. There's just a laundry list of things that they've attached to this. That's on one end of the spectrum. If you get hit with something really huge, you can have uh, a dramatic tra- um, traumatic brain injury where you know you have to relearn to walk. You have to relearn to do all of these basic tasks. Unfortunately, you know, I'm not on that end of the spectrum. I'm on a very mild end. You found yourself uh, having a kind of a dual perspective on your own actions. You describe the logical you and the crazy you and going back and forth. And there's some really, I thought, gripping scenes where you're getting into your car, into your minivan, and figuring out how you can fit it and kit it for a pistol harness. Right. And that's... That's you. You know, you you said in the beginning that, um, you know the, the, the book is. You know, you liked how the book was crafted, and it's like I was looking over my own shoulder almost while I was doing this. It was happening to me, and then I was trying to put this you know logical framework on it. And that, I'm glad you brought up that scene because that is how it literally felt. I looked like I was. I felt like I was looking over my own shoulder at, look at all of these things that you're doing. Like normal people. Do not do not do this. Why are you, um, you know, why are you planning on who to shoot in in the airport if you need to escape? Why are you, um, why are you planning on, um, on you know, like where your pistol needs to go in your minivan? Who do you think that you're going to shoot? Well, I didn't think I was going to shoot anyone. It, it wasn't about that. It was about um, this is this is how my brain knew to keep myself safe. This is the habits that I was in. Um, and the the thoughts just kind of come unbidden all the time. 
you started working with one psychologist and, and then another. I'd like you to talk about the two of them and contrast kind of their approaches because you you did find something that helped you. And I think this is a, a, a it's important to to understand this because that's why the book is so superbly crafted. That at the very end of this uh, experience, you were able to reach back and understand it and give it to us no means that we can experience it and understand it. Well, I think I appreciate you saying that. I think you can understand it, but I'd also say I don't feel like there's any cure. There's just learning to put everything in its proper place and then, you know, moving forward with life. If you if you know, if you're grieving um, a parent or a spouse or a child or something, you're never really done grieving, but at a certain point you just tie your shoes and get up and make breakfast and, you know, move on with the day. And it's not just right in front of you, right in front of your nose all the time. Um, so I, I did have two different um, counselors, psychologists, whatever else. And the, the first was was very concerned and, and very mothering and very, you know, there, there and patted my knee and everything else. And then when she was convinced um, – that I had PTSD, post-traumatic uh, stress disorder, and I really needed medication. You know, I got hurried up from from one office to another to like the serious wing of the mental health clinic, where I talked to uh, to a new psychologist, and I identify um, them as my old shrink and new shrink, or old counselor and new shrink, I should say. And so, in with my with my new shrink or my new uh, psychologist there. You know, we, we focused on other things. We focused on breathing and yoga and um, and talk therapy and working through some of this. And, you know, that that's what worked for me. And again, I hesitate to say worked because that makes it sound like, oh, it's it's all better now and things are sunshine and flowers and, and whatever else. But it helped me put it in its place. Some guys eventually do need medication. Some guys, you know, yoga doesn't work at all and they need to do something else. I think I think the the challenging thing about um, having some sort of mental health stress disorder and the traumatic brain injury is that it manifests itself so differently in so many different people that PTSD is just one diagnosis in that big manual of mental health diagnoses. And you have to have these 12 things. And if you don't have those 12 things, it doesn't mean you don't have a problem. It just means you don't fit that diagnosis. Maybe you, maybe there's something else and, or maybe you have no diagnosis, but, um, you know, it's just because you're bothered by what happened to you in the war or you're grieving lost friends or, you know, any of these other kinds of things, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. Perhaps, you know, that's called life in the end. You know, it, it's interesting um, when you talk about the different kind of diagnoses because I think that's that's really true that we have this tendency to think that if you have this symptom that here's the one cure and it will always act on every single person in the same exact way. But cures have as varied effects on the humans that they're uh, given to as do the diseases and, and, the, and the problems we have. Right. And I was, I, was trying to, I was trying to set up this parallel partly consciously and, and partly I think it just kind of worked out this way. Um, you know, that there's this uh, – the chapter is called The Science and the Chakras where I talk about a lot of this mm -hmm. because there is this medical diagnosis part and there's this very like – cold, technical I, – I say cold only in like an analytical sort of way, you know, like a, a very specific certified, um, you know, researched method of this is how the brain works and so this is what's wrong with it and so this is now what we're going to do about it. And then comparing that to just this general messy human experience and then the fact that what worked or what helped me – um, I need a new word for worked, but for what helped me through a lot of this was yoga, which is, you know, putting your body through these various forms that people have been doing for thousands of years. And I'm not sure what the medical research support that that should bring centering and, you know, making you feel present and, you know, 
like wh- why that should work as opposed to a pill or something else. I, I'm not sure what the not sure what the research basis of that is, um, but but you're right. Just as every diagnosis and uh, every cure is going to have a different outcome, um, applying a lot of this to this messy human experience, uh, everything doesn't fit neatly in a box. Well, I think that's one of the things that's so interesting about this book and and makes it such a a, a powerful reading experience is that we get. You manage to give us a very individual experience, yet you extract a lot of kind of uh, universal. We can see the universal themes, in, especially in the way that you've uh, splintered up the narrative. You know, I don't want to speak for anyone other than myself when it comes to the the personal experience or the um, – you know, I, I'm not trying to become a spokesman for veterans, and this is what all veterans need, or, or anything like that. I, I I try to be very clear that hey, this is this is just a story of what happened to me. But maybe if you can't pull like a specific uh, cure out from that, or diagnosis, or treatment, or something else, I I tried to really set up here. Here's the story of what happened to me. But by the way. Um, you know, here's kind of some of those timeless themes that emerge from what happened to me. And and that's really the parts of the book that I like best, I guess, are not necessarily the parts about me, but the parts where I'm trying to explore. Um, I, I talk, for example, in one section uh, about what it feels like to go outside the wire. And the wire is that perimeter around the base, and and you you leave the safety of the wire, and you go out, and you're you're going into combat. And what do you think about when you're transitioning from relative safety into swimming in this sea that's trying to kill you? And what I thought about was, I wonder how long people have been doing what I'm doing. You know, if I think back to my an uncle in Vietnam. Uh, a couple uncles in Vietnam and a couple grandfathers in Guam in World War II and Germany in World War II, and then a great great grandfather in the Civil War uh, that I know about. And then how how far back? How how long have I been doing this? How long have we all been doing this? And I think that that's the part that I really enjoyed writing and exploring. I've been speaking with Brian Kastner. His new book is The Long Walk. Thank you for joining me, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.